This talk was recorded by Insight Meditation South Bay in Mountain View, California. For more talks and information, visit www.imsb.org. Uh, so, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm not sure where I am on the uh, progression of this particular topic. You're number two. I'm number two. Okay, I'm always happy to be number two. Just like my dog. <laughs> uh, well, I have to, you know, it's been a while since I was asked to be part of this, and I remember that when I was asked about this particular topic and would I be interested, I, I kind of laughed to myself thinking, I don't think I talk about anything else. Because to me, this is the great gift of Buddhism in the West is it's mostly lay people like us. Like Misha, who's the librarian for, you know, 60% of her life, and Zen teacher, the other 40%. Uh, you know, we can't be talking about one part being the, quote, real world, and the other part being our spiritual life. If it isn't the two combined, what is the good of it? So in a sense for me, when I found a teacher who was willing to ordain a lay person as a monk, I knew I'd found the right place because I take my practice very seriously, but I also really feel, as I'm sure all of you do, that the real world is the one in which we are always in. That yes, it's wonderful to go off to the monastery or on retreats, uh, or do this wonderful online uh, program that Shiloh's going to do. These are all great things, but tomorrow morning you have to get up and go to work. And what are you going to do with your practice then? Because when we sit in the morning or in the evening afterwards, we feel all relaxed and calm, and then we walk into work and the first emergency arises and we lose it. The whole point is for there to be no separation between your everyday world and your spiritual world. That, as Suzuki Roshi used to say, it should be seamless. So, this where the rubber meets the road, I laughed when I saw that too, because uh, that's the trick, isn't it? It's very simple when we're sitting in a group that is like-minded and we get up and we talk to each other and we're all happy and oh isn't it wonderful we're here and what nice people we all are <laughs> but then we have to go out and we have to deal with people who aren't like-minded and who have road rage and who are giving us the finger for who knows what reason and it makes us mad <laughs> it makes us a little crazy so the real trick in practice is how do we take this wonderful, calm, serene, beautiful mind into the world every day, in every moment? How do we really do that? So my, my talk, the title, A Little Attention Makes All the Difference, it seems to me that our first job as practitioners 
is to be diligent about our sitting practice. Without that, if, if we are not diligent, we become dilettantes. And if we become dilettantes, we actually are not practicing with Buddha mind. We're practicing with individual mind, which is, oh, I don't really feel like sitting today. I'll do it tomorrow when I have more time or when I'm comfortable or when, you know, blah, 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 whatever excuse we come up. You really need to do this every day. And you need to do it for a reasonable amount of time. But sometimes if you only have five minutes, if everybody in the world sat for five minutes a day, it would be a different world. But given that they don't, we have to sit for them. (laughs) You know, in many countries, this is actually the tradition that the monks sit for everybody else. The villagers support the monks. They bring them food. They bring, you know, rice, whatever it is. And it is the monks that are doing the practice for them. Well, that all sounds well and good. It's sort of, though, like asking someone else to take care of your conscience for you. You really have to do it yourself. So, my subtitle for the talk was a primer of mindful living in the midst of the ordinary distractions of daily life. But I could have also said the not-so-ordinary distractions. First of all, we need to ask ourselves, okay, attention to what? But what is it I'm supposed to be paying attention to? So my husband and I have this conversation a lot when we talk about driving. And he says, you know, I'm a really good driver, but if I was always paying attention, as you're talking about, I wouldn't be. I would be too tight. And I said, no, no, that's not what we're talking about. Attention is not contrived. It is not self-conscious. And it is not, you're not trying to do it. It's actually a very relaxed state of mind. So as you're driving along, many things are going to arise in your mind, and often that's a problem because we're away someplace else. But it is the case that often when an emergency happens and someone is breaking in front of you unexpectedly, you're right there. But sometimes you're not. And this is because your mind was so far gone that even your general attention was not present. And even worse, perhaps you were on your cell phone or you were texting someone, all of which you are not supposed to do. But as soon as you do anything besides driving, I guarantee you are now doing less attentive driving. Putting on the radio, what happens is you go back and forth between your driving mind and the radio. And it's a split second, but it's just choo, 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 back and forth. You're listening and then you're not. Because you're watching something in front of you. And then you're listening again. And then you're watching. Pay attention the next time you turn the radio on in your car. This is especially why actually listening to Dharma talks in your car is a very bad idea. <laughs> I do not recommend it because the Dharma talk is going to be very interesting and you're going to want to really listen to what that teacher has to say and the next thing you know, you are not going to be paying attention to your driving. So, 
What is it that we're trying to pay attention to? Whatever is directly in front of us right now. Really easy to say and very hard to do. Because this is what I see with the human mind. The human mind likes new. It always wants something new. So put yourself right now in your mind at Yosemite. You're in front of one of those incredible, beautiful falls. And you're watching it. How long do you think you're going to sit there and just watch that waterfall? Generally, people watch it for five minutes. And then they're ready to go do something else. Now you, because you are meditators, you might decide to actually meditate by that waterfall and stay for an hour. Maybe even two. But at some point, you're going to want to do something else because this is the nature of our reptilian brain. We are always looking for the new. It is very hard for us to just look at a flower for hours on end. There's a lot to see in a flower if you really look at it. And most people don't. You know, Georgia O'Keeffe said that. She said it about her flower paintings. She said, you know, you think you understand my flower paintings, but you don't. Because you're not really looking, and I am. And I understand this because years ago I was doing a class for young children. I'm a watercolorist, and I was doing an afternoon class for six weeks in watercolors for very young children, like 8 to 10. And uh, we had flowers all over the room one day to paint after I had taught some basic technique. And one of the flowers was a nasturtium with its beautiful, those, those lovely round green leaves they have. And I said, okay, first thing first, remember, we're working on composition. I want you to lightly draw what you're going to paint and then bring it to me so we can work on the composition before you begin to put paint down within I'm sure it couldn't have been even five minutes. One young boy runs up to me with his piece of paper. And I'm thinking, how could he have possibly drawn anything in this amount of time? Well, once he showed me his piece of paper, it was really clear. He had drawn a nasturtium leaf. It was a big round circle, in the center of which was a dot, and four lines coming out of it. (laughs) I thought, okay, careful. I said, okay, so do me a favor. Go get that leaf that you drew. So he went and got it. I said, first of all, when you're looking at this leaf, is it a perfect circle? Well, no, not really. I said, no, there's this one little part that kind of dips into that place that you put that center dot. But, okay, now I would like you to count, you know those lines you made? How many lines do you have? Four. I said, would you count the lines on this leaf for me? Oh, seven. I said, yeah, now I want you to go back and draw what you're actually looking at. But this is not just the problem of a nine-year-old boy. This is the problem for all of us. We're not really seeing our life. We're paying attention way up here 
but not way down here. And that is actually what practice is asking us to do. So attention to what? Right here, right now. But then, attention to who? Ourselves, first of all. This is one of the hardest things I find in meditation groups to get across because it sounds so selfish. You have to look at this one first. I am always reminded of the first time in an airplane when I heard the uh, stewardess talking about, okay, if the air uh, things come down in the case of an accident, adults put theirs on first and then put it on your child. And I'm thinking, what? Of course you would help your child first. The child can't do it for themselves. It took me a while to understand, but practice is the same way. If you go unconscious because you haven't put yours on first, how are you going to help your child? It's the same thing. If you haven't done your work, if you haven't been paying attention to this one here deeply in self-reflection, How on earth do you think you're going to go out there and take your practice with you? It is my real objection to the whole notion of going out and doing good works. Is that a lot of times it's very well intentioned, but the people who are going out to do these good works haven't done their work themselves. So there are many teaching stories about paying attention. And one of my favorites comes from a book um, many of you might be familiar with called Stories of the Spirit, Stories of the Heart. It's uh, edited by Christina Feldman and Jack Cornfield. This is actually a Zen story that's contained in there, but I mean, I could have chosen any number, but I like this one. Zen students are with their masters at least 10 years before they presumed to teach others. Nan-in was visited by Teno, who having passed his apprenticeship had become a teacher. The day happened to be rainy, so Teno wore wooden clogs and carried an umbrella. After greeting him, Nan-in remarked, Hmm, I suppose you left your wooden clogs in the vestibule. I want to know if your umbrella is on the right or the left side of the clogs. Tenno, confused, had no answer. And he realized that he was unable to carry his Zen every minute. He became Nanin's pupil, and he studied six more years to accomplish this every minute Zen. Take the word Zen out and put attention in. Now, This story is placed in a section from which I named my talk tonight, A Little Attention Makes All the Difference. And the introduction to that section says, The secret of beginning a life of deep awareness and sensitivity lies in our willingness to pay attention. Our growth as conscious, awake human beings is marked not so much by grand gestures and visible renunciations as by extending loving attention to the minutest particulars of our lives. Every relationship, every thought, every gesture 
is blessed with meaning through the wholehearted attention we bring to it. So in this story, there are actually two kinds of inattention going on. The first is Tenno's realization that he did not know on which side of his clogs he had put his umbrella and Why did he not know? Because he wasn't thinking about his umbrella or his clogs. He was thinking about this meeting that he was about to have with this famous teacher and how he was going to impress him with what a great guy he was and how they were going to have this great Dharma combat and he was going to show this guy just how wonderful he was and he just flipped off his clogs and threw his umbrella and he rushed in. This is what we're doing all the time. Now, if you had left your shoes outside, I would have said, well, do you know where your shoes are and where you left them and how you left them? And even with my Zen students, the answer is often, no. <laughs> this is because you're just flipping them off while you're walking in thinking about what's going to happen next. This is how we live our whole life practically. All about what's going to happen next. Not what is happening now. So, part of the problem is we keep dividing the world up between what we think is important and what is not important. Where my clogs and my umbrella are, that's not important. But going to meet the Zen master, well, that's important. Now, the second kind of inattention, which in a way is even more telling, is that Tenno had no answer. He could have done anything, even if he didn't know which side his umbrella was on. There were lots of responses he could have made if he had been in the moment, but he still wasn't. He was still rushing ahead to wait until Nanin asked him some Dharma question that he could then answer, he still was not in the moment. How much of our life are we missing this way? And that's just part of it. Part of it is how much we personally are missing. But think about it. If you are not here in this moment, then you're not here with anything else either. And so you keep missing the present moment and the opportunity to engage. I had the most wonderful example of this recently to bring this story up to date. Mm. It was my birthday in May and my husband three days before my birthday informed me that he had no gift for me. And I said, well, that's no problem because we're planning to go to the city on Friday and we could just go to Japantown because I'm sure I will find something I will like. <laughs> and he was thrilled. That got him off the hook. I was happy because I knew I'd find something. And some of you may know, because I actually did it as an auction item for this group, that uh, I have been studying tea ceremony as long as I have been a Zen student, so over 30 years. And my tea teacher, my original teacher, had given me many beautiful things when she died in her will. 
But there were a few things that I did not have of the kind of equipment that you need to have a full official tea ceremony. And one of the things that I, after all these years, still did not have was there's a small lacquer box that contains the tea for the tea ceremony. And it's called a natsume. And the lid comes off and the green powdered tea is inside and you scoop it in in such a way that it looks like Mount Fuji. Of course, by the time you've scooped out enough of the tea, it doesn't look like Mount Fuji anymore. But anyway, up until this point, I have had a fake lacquer natsume, one just made out of plastic. If you didn't know, you wouldn't know any different. And I had a couple of very nice ones, but still, the real ones are made out of lacquer. Wood underneath that has been shaped by hand with this black lacquer. It's a very tedious process and it takes a real skilled craftsman to do it. But a not inexpensive item. So I found out from my husband sort of what my price category was. And uh, we went into Japantown. And first we, we went to one store which is at one end of, of Japantown. The man in there uh, was Caucasian, and he had bought it from the, the man who used to own it, who was a very elderly Japanese gentleman who, every time I went in, had to tell me how his was the only authentic store in Japantown. <laughs> anyway, he was no longer there, and now there was this elderly Caucasian gentleman. And he was clearly uh, an antique dealer. And many of the things in that store were. And you could tell because when you asked about the price, they didn't have a price on them, you had to ask. They were four and five hundred dollars a piece, which was a little bit not in my category. So I thanked him very much, and then we went down to the other end of Japantown where my actually favorite Japanese store is. It's called Asakichi. And when I first walked in, there was a Japanese man probably in his late 40s. And, you know, if you know anything about the Japanese, uh, they're very polite. So when you first walk into a store, there's a, a slight bow and a welcome, yurushaimase, and you thank them. And I then say that I am there to look at their natsume. Oh, a little deeper bow, because now I'm not just a tourist anymore. Clearly I know what I'm about. But that, at that moment, because of what I'd said, suddenly the man behind the counter looks up, and it's Mr. Asakichi himself. Oh, oh, so good to see you. Big. Now the first guy is really bowing, because now I'm clearly important enough to be recognized. I don't go there very often. Mr. Asakichi doesn't know my name. He does now, but he didn't know my name. I actually wasn't even sure that Asakichi was his name, so I've never said it out loud. But he knows me because he knows my current tea teacher, who he lived with and studied with in Kyoto for 10 years in tea ceremony. So because of my tea teacher, I was being given the royal treatment. So he immediately whips out this cloth, and he starts pulling out his natsume, and he's asking me about Richard and how is Richard doing, and oh, I just got back from a buying trip, and he is being so wonderful. And so we're looking at these natsume, and I see a couple that are actually in my price range. And there's one very beautiful one. It's black lacquer with uh, gourds painted.
painted on it in uh, gold, gold rimmed, and then beautiful colors inside. Perfect, because I have to do a very fancy tea ceremony next weekend, and gourds are a summer thing. So I look at my husband, who the whole time is standing there just listening. I say, okay, okay. And then, by way of explanation, I turned to Asakichi-san, and I said, this is a birthday gift that my husband is giving me. Oh, it is your birthday? Oh, we will throw some tea in with that. (laughs) And then I thought, oh, shoot, I blew it. Because you never mention something like that to a Japanese person, a Japanese-Japanese person, because they immediately want to give you a gift. And I thought, oh, dear. Because I knew I needed to get some tea, and it's $30 to $50 a container, this tea. So right away, I'm, I'm already thinking, oh, no. But he takes the Natsume, and then he finds the little wooden box that the Natsume goes in. It's got beautiful calligraphy on it, and it ties up with a special tie. And then the next thing I know, he's whipping out a furoshiki, which is one of those beautiful silk squares that they wrap presents in. And he puts the box, and then he goes and he gets this $35 container of tea and puts it on top of the box, and then he wraps the whole thing up in this beautiful furoshiki. And the whole time, I'm just thinking, oh my goodness. In the meantime, he's also told me he's going to give me a big discount. So I'm thinking, good grief. It's a good thing I bought something because he's practically negated the whole cost by giving me these gifts. The whole time, he is being totally gracious. Engaging me in conversation, politely asking about my teacher, about tea. Well, then it comes time for the payment. So I get out my credit card. Think about it for a moment. When you pull out your credit card, are you using one hand or two? Usually one, right? It's the way Americans do it. We pull out our credit card and we hand it. He takes it with his two hands, and bows. And then he goes off, and and then he hands it back to me with two hands. I take it, put it away. We finish our transaction. There's all kinds of wishing well, thanking, say hi to Richard, please pass on my best regards, blah, blah, blah. Finally, we leave, and we go out, and my husband and I stop in the little cafe right there to have a cup of tea and a sweet. And my husband is still all agog. The first thing he says to me is, did you notice how he handed you your credit card? (laughs) I said, I am so glad you noticed that. Because I would imagine that most people going in who were not Japanese, it would have gone right by them. But that attention to detail. I wrote him later. I got his address and I talked to my teacher and it turned out Asakichi is actually his first name, which you never really know because it used to be when Japanese people came to this country, their last name is first in Japan and their first name is last. But sometimes when they come, they switch it around, which is totally confusing. And it turns out Asakichi is his first name, so I'm really glad I never called him Asakichi before I knew him, because it would be totally rude. But I was able to write him. 
And I told him, you know, you made my day. It was a special day. And your graciousness and your generosity and your kindness and your interest, it just set the tone for the rest of my birthday. And I just wanted to say thank you. Three weeks later, I get a postcard from Japan. He's there on a buying trip, and he's thanking me for my thank you note. <laughs> you can't win. <laughs> my point is, he was so completely there with me. He was not thinking about somebody else in the store. There were other people in the store. I was aware of that myself. He was so completely there with me. I felt like the Queen of England. Every single thing he did, right down to handing me my credit card with his two beautiful hands. This is what we could be doing all the time. We can truly meet each person and each thing in our life with that level of attention. And why? Because it makes the world a much happier, kinder, more generous place to be. When you do something like that, then you go out and you pass it on. You're not even trying to pass it on. You just feel so wonderful, you do it naturally. This is what people like the Dalai Lama know. When you watch the Dalai Lama come in to give a public lecture, the first thing he is doing is greeting every single one of those monks. He bows and he takes them by the hand and he pats them on the head and they're beaming at him so that by the time he gets up on his little dais, he is beaming out at all of you. He understands it. I understand it. You understand. We pay attention, not because of some funny thing of, well, shoes should be in a certain order, or umbrellas should be here instead of there. We pay attention, first of all, to make sure that we're not already in the next moment before we've taken care of this one. You know, poor Tenno, he showed Nanin immediately how unready he was to be a teacher. Because Namian knew exactly what was going on. He'd already won the Dharma combat before Tenno ever walked in. You weren't here. You were off in your dream fantasy land of what you were going to be saying and how I was going to say something back and what you were going to say back to that. You never actually saw me. The day I walked into Asakichi's to get that Natsume, I felt so seen. It's amazing what we do with each other. How we just walk on by. Even with people that we know. I, you know, I know I do this at school. I try not to. But again, we get caught in the new. If it's somebody I already know that I see a dozen times a week, it's easier for me to walk by, you know, maybe smile or something, but not say anything. When all somebody actually ever 
wants from us is to be seen. Dogs understand this. Why don't we? I mean, when I go home tonight, my dog is going to be all over me as if I have been gone for weeks. He knows that's his job, and he's happy to do it. <laughs> so, the story of Nanin and Tenno, the story of me and Asakichi, it's all of our practice story. Nanin actually sees Tenno for who he really is. Tenno, on the other hand, is chagrined, maybe even embarrassed, because he realizes that Nanin has busted him. We all feel that way a little bit when our teachers point out, oh, did you notice that? No. But the good news is, Tenno has practiced long enough, at least ten years, we know. He understands that Nanin is not trying to put him down. He's not trying to embarrass him. He's not trying to be mean. He's actually trying to help him wake up. It is grandmotherly kindness, as they say. And so, even though I'm sure Tenno was a bit abashed he ends up staying with Nanyin for another six years until he really understands how to practice his every minute Zen, as he says. Now, how Asakichi learned this? Probably tea ceremony. It is just another practice. It doesn't actually matter what practice you do, Vipassana, Tibetan, Zen, Shingon, Tea, Kudo, the archery, I, I don't actually care. But it has to be something that requires your complete and undivided attention so that you can watch your attention go away. Every time that clapping happened, I came back to myself. Oh, oh there you are. Okay. It's wonderful. I remember one time doing a two-week retreat with Gil, and we were at Hidden Villa. And both of the Saturdays, there were parties there. Now, my problem, actually, is I have a musical memory that beats all. And if somebody starts playing any music that has lyrics to it, even if they're not singing the lyrics, I know the lyrics. Which is very distracting for a meditative mind. Because then, you know all the lyrics. You know, they were doing all of me. They were just doing the music. Da, da, da. And in my mind, I'm going, all of me, why not take all of me? It's really awful. (laughs) It's a curse. But when I went in to talk to to, uh, Gil about this, and, you know, in the first few days, what can I do? He looked at me and said, you know, when I was practicing in Thailand, we were in the middle of a city. We had to practice in the middle of the day with the buses and the loudspeakers and the this and the that. You have to concentrate. I was like, okay. And by the end of the second week, it was amazing. I was finally able to completely let go of the music in my mind for the first time in years. 
You use those distractions to concentrate, to bring you back. So, for instance, when I'm in teeth ceremony, if I am not paying attention, the worst possible things can happen. The natsume gets tipped over in the green teeth all over the tatami mat. Oops. It's a lot of work to clean up powdered tea off of tatami mats. Or, sometimes even worse, you spill the tea out of the bowl. You know, you're rolling that bowl around and you roll it a little too far. (laughs) All kinds of things can go wrong, believe me. So, the fact is, paying attention is not just words. It is the way in which we are going to deal with the extraordinary distractions of our life. When you are sitting, you have no distractions other than some noise, maybe, or an itch, or you're in a quiet place. You're in a place dedicated to sitting. That's the first thing. The second thing is maybe then you have some kind of activity that you do in a meditative way. For me, it's tea ceremony. That's halfway between meditation and activity. But at some point, you finally got to go to activity. You have to go to your job. My job is teaching 250 children who are in the library all day long. And children love to yell. And I don't have a quiet library. (laughs) Because that's not, I mean, we have classes in there all day long and they're not quiet. And that's the way we run the school. We give them a very big field in which to be supported. But by three o'clock, I'm ready for a little silence. But during those six hours, absolute beginning to end, no break, anybody who tells you teachers have a break is lying, you are having to be there for each child that comes in front of you. Each one of you has a job like that. Somewhere, something. You're either taking care of your children's children or you're taking care of your parents or you're taking care of your work. Each one of you has work to do. I know this. How are you going to go from this non-distractive environment to that with the same mind? And then, even worse, what about the extraordinary distraction? Someone you love has suddenly got cancer, and you're going to have to be there for them. Your husband loses his job, and economically, suddenly, you are in really deep trouble. Your child gets a brain tumor. You are in a car crash. Your house gets flooded. You have no flood insurance. These are all things that have happened in my life. Not my personal child, but one of my children at school. And right now, one of my dear friends, who was a neighbor for years, is dying from melanoma. And I am going to be the person to be there with her through the whole thing. These are the extraordinary distractions, if you want to call them. But how are you going to be there for these people 
if you can't be there for yourself, if you can't be there in this moment, right here, you will not be rock steady then. That is when the rubber hits the road. Each moment the rubber is hitting the road, but sometimes you are breaking full on and the rubber smell is there, and that is because the emergency has arrived. Your practice needs to be rock solid at that point. And then the final emergency. You're dying. And it is going to come faster than you imagine. It could be tomorrow, next week, next month. You're young, doesn't matter. You're old, doesn't matter. My friend's only 67 and she'll be dead in three months. My tea teacher lived in 93. My little friend with the brain tumor lived to 12. You have no guarantee. Don't miss your life now. Go out there and start paying attention. That is how we meet that rubber road. There's a a chant that we do in Zen before we have a Dharma talk. It goes like this. An unsurpassed, penetrating and perfect dharma is rarely met with. Even a hundred thousand million kalpas. It doesn't say that it's not there. It's that it's rarely met with. Every moment is a dharma. Every person is a dharma. Every tree is a dharma. Every clapping is a dharma. If we look at it that way, every single thing is a dharma, and it is rarely met. What I'm asking for myself and for all of you, can we meet each moment as Asakichi did? Full attention, full interest, full compassion, full wisdom. I read a book recently. It's a halfway between a children's and an adult book. They just made a movie out of it. I don't know if this line's in the movie because I haven't seen it. Uh, but the line says, you know, it's talking about why are we here? <laughs> And the person says, I think it's because the universe wants us to notice it. Go out and notice that universe. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.